calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Bookburners, Episode 4. Five. They were on an Alitalia flight. At first, Sal was a little disappointed that an outfit like this didn't have its own airplane. Then, when at a wave of some papers from Manchu, they got the next four seats to Madrid and were escorted through security at once, she got a little more respect for the whole operation. Maybe they didn't have a plane, but they did have about a thousand years of favors to call in, and they didn't mind doing it whenever they needed to, or even when it just made their lives a little easier. The pilot told the cabin and crew to prepare for landing in Madrid. Manchu was still sleeping, his mouth slightly open. Grace, sitting next to him, had finished Persuasion and was just starting North Ranger Abbey. Sal so watched her for a minute. Grace turned a page every twelve seconds or so. Sal timed it. How could anyone read that fast, Sal thought. Why would anyone want to? Then Grace caught her watching, and Sal looked away. Are you all right? Liam asked from the seat next to her. Why does everyone keep asking me that? Sal said. Well, right now you look a little green. I don't like flying very much, she said. Really? Liam said. You might have picked the wrong job. I think the problem is that I've chosen the wrong state of consciousness. She nodded toward Manchu. It could be right, but then you'd miss this delicious snack. He'd been doing this since they left the Vatican, trying to chat with her. She would say chatting her up, but if that's what was going on, he wasn't very good at it, or at least not very good at getting to the point. But he kept doing it, whatever it was, in the car on the highway out to the airport, while boarding the plane, and now here on the plane for two hours forcing conversations that they didn't need to have, forcing jokes that she didn't think were all that funny, exercising his wit just a little too often, but not hard enough. And he talked about nothing, nothing that mattered, nothing worth a damn. It was setting off all her personal alarms. It was like he was trying to hide something behind this thick verbal smokescreen he was kicking up. But what was he hiding? 
It was getting on her nerves. Liam, Sal said. Yeah? Whatever you're trying to do here, I think you might be trying a little too hard. Liam sighed. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm talking too much. Yeah, but it's okay. It's just that Grace and Manchu, they're not talkers. And we spend too much time in planes and cars not to talk. Was the person before me a talker? Yeah. Why'd he leave? She was a she, and I don't think I'm entirely at liberty to say. You're not giving me a lot of faith in this organization. Good one, Liam said. I'm serious, Liam. Sorry. He took a pretzel out of the bag on the tray in front of him and chewed it more slowly than most people chew pretzels. He was still being annoying, Sal decided. Then she chided herself for being harsh. He just apologized and backed off when you told him how you felt, she thought to herself. He's not trying to screw you or screw you over. He's just trying to make a friend. Don't fault him just because he's terrible at the preliminaries. But then, she argued back to herself, you give him an opening and you'll never hear the end of it. She took a breath. Oh, what the hell, she thought. So, she said, about I, a, uh, the volcano in Iceland. A flat Liam said. Yeah, that, Sal said. What was it like? I don't know, Liam said. It was just before my time here. Well, that was when I was. Uh... He put his hands together as if he was about to pray, then tilted them, lay his head on them, and closed his eyes. I see, Sal said. Though I doubt I did much sleeping. Has anyone ever figured out what happened to you? Asante's been over the case a few times. Liam said. She has some guesses, but nothing concrete. We don't know what possessed me. Aside from Grace hitting it in the face over and over again, well, probably that means hitting me in the face. We don't know exactly why it let me go either. Or, for that matter, if it really did. For all I know, it's still in here. He tapped his temple with a finger. For all I know, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and try to kill all of you, then take over the world. Sal thought of her brother. Again. She forced him out of her mind and took a sip of her drink. That was a little awkward, Liam said. It's okay, Sal said. No, it's not okay. Not with your brother the way he is. Sal narrowed her eyes and looked at him again. He was more observant than she'd given him credit for, after all. Liam lowered his voice. Look, you may have noticed I'm in suspiciously good shape for a man who sits in front of a computer all day. It's not just so I look good in a suit. It's part of a strict regimen I've kept for myself, of exercise, a diet, of sleep. I've got everything down to the rep, the heart rate, the calories, the minute. I do it because I want to make sure I don't slip. I want tripwires all over my life, so if the demon's still in there, I can tell if it starts taking over. And so you can tell, too. You catch me eating a piece of cake and it's not someone's birthday, you lock me away, yeah? Yeah, Sal said. That goes for all of us on this plane. I know we seem flippant. I know it looks like we don't get along. Maybe we don't even like each other very much. Sometimes I don't know if we do. But the mission unites us, you understand? Each of us has lost too much to magic to take it as anything but dead serious. I can't promise that in two years you'll have your brother back. I can't. I can promise you, though, that we won't stop trying. We'll go the world over, wave every magic wand we can. And with every step, we'll make sure we save as many people as possible from the same fate. 
His face, for the first time since Sal had met him, was completely earnest. He wasn't just being nice or trying to get something out of her or keeping secrets. He was just telling the truth. We're doing everything we can, he said. I am doing everything I can. Thanks, Sal said. Maybe he's not so bad, she thought. I'm glad you're here, she said. He patted her hand twice. She didn't move it. Six. The policeman who showed up at the apartment building was a burly man with a friendly, mustachioed face. On him, the police uniform, the brightly colored shoulders, the checkered band on the hat, looked almost clownish. The superintendent looked at him and felt afraid for him. Which apartment is it? The policeman said. Uh, show you, the superintendent said. Halfway up the stairs, he said, there's something about the door. What, the policeman said. You'll see. A nervous man was waiting on the landing. You're the girl's father, the policeman said. Yes, the father said. So, tell me what's happening here, the policeman said. You should just look at the door. That's the key jammed in the lock? Yes, but that's not what you need to see, the superintendent said. Is that the door is breathing? Breathing, the policeman said. Watch. The policeman watched. The superintendent was right. The door was breathing, without question. There was no other way to think of it. The policeman stared at it for a minute. How long has it been doing this, the policeman said. A couple hours. My girls are in there, the father said. I'm sure of it. What's the tenant's name again, the policeman said. Gabriel Medim, the superintendent said. The policeman knocked on the door. Mr. Madam? There was no answer. This is the police, Mr. Madam. I understand you have two little girls with you. I'm concerned for your safety and theirs. Please open the door. The door seemed to sigh. Mr. Madam, open the door if you can. The door inhaled. Mr. Madam? The door held its breath. The policeman saw it. He looked at the father and superintendent and put out his hand. Step back, okay? The policeman cleared his throat. Mr. Madam, if you don't open this door. It happened so fast that the father and the superintendent didn't really see it. But the policeman saw it all. The door flew open and slammed against the inside wall, and a giant spidery hand of wood and bone snatched him up and pulled him inside. It wasn't soft or gentle this time. The door slammed shut behind him and a layer of twigs and hair grew over it. The hand dragged the policeman down the hallway. The floorboards were half gone, the holes covered with grass, with bark, with skin, with what seemed to be a sheet of fingernail. He passed the door to the living room. There were the two girls. They were floating off the floor, their arms and legs out, their hair splayed around their heads as if the room were filled with water. No, they were suspended from the ceiling pushed up off the floor by a swarm of threads that kept breaking and rebuilding, breaking and rebuilding every second. The rug teemed with them. It was a dark meadow. The lamp had twisted forward and grown eyes and bony limbs stretching toward the floor. The couch had a thick pelt of fur, six squat hairy legs that ended in clawed feet, and a mouth full of irregular teeth. 
It was climbing up the wall. Everything was growing, growing something. The policeman kept getting dragged, first to the far end of the hallway, then into the room with Gabriel and his book. The man was still at the desk. The book was still in front of him, but it was hard to tell how much of him was left. Gabriel's arms had fused with the book up to the elbows. His head was down on the book, on the desk. The policeman couldn't see anything of his face, just his ears at the level of the pages. Gabriel's feet had melted into the floor, and from his back it was as though he had tried to grow wings, seven wings of skin and cloth, but they were too big for the room and had melded with the ceiling instead. The walls of the room were hair and plaster. No, splinters and sinew. No, the policeman didn't know what the walls were. And within a breath, it didn't matter anymore. Things that felt like fingers or snakes rose out of the floor and coiled around him, curled into his mouth. Then the policeman was somewhere else. He was a winged serpent in a crystal cave. He was a gargantuan snail with a thousand colonies of sentient insects anchored to his shell. He was a huge, many-legged thing nestled inside a silver egg. When he hatched and spread his wings across the sky, the world would shudder with wonder. Outside the apartment, the father and the superintendent looked at each other, then back at the door. Officer, the superintendent yelled. Officer. What do we do now, the father said. Do we call the police? That was the police, the superintendent said. I mean, call them again, the father said. My girls are still in there. They're still there. Do you hear me? We have to do something. What do I tell them? I have no idea, the father said. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. 
Piora is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Piora's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piora's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Seven. Team 3's van was caught behind an idling taxi. Grace, behind the wheel, cursed under her breath. Take the next left, Liam said. How much time do you think we have? Grace said. The police were called just before we landed, Liam said. Something strange in the neighborhood. An officer arrived at the scene. Nothing else yet. All right, then, Menchu said. The usual plan. Grace, you take points. Liam, you're right behind her. Sal, I want you to get the artifact, whatever it is, okay? Okay, Sal said. Menchu looked at Sal, her eyes sharp, her jaw set. Are you all right? He said. Yeah, I'm fine, Sal said. Why? You look worried. This? Sal said, pointing at her face. This is my game face. Liam laughed. Game face? Menchu said. You all must have game faces, Sal said. Everyone has a game face. I, Menchu said. Oh, you have a game face, all right, Liam said to Menchu. It looks like this. He narrowed his face and scrunched up his nose. I do not look like that, Menchu said. If we could get a camera to work around here, Liam said, you would know just how wrong you are. I don't have a game face, Grace said. You don't ever not have a game face, Liam said. Take the next right. They turned the corner onto a wider street. There was a police car parked in front of an apartment building. At last, Grace said. She stopped the van behind the car. They all started getting out. You sure you're okay? Menchu said to Sal. Yeah, Sal said, a trace of irritation in her voice. Everyone stop asking. Let's do this. The door to the apartment building was open. The call was to the second floor apartment, Liam said. The super said two girls from another apartment are trapped in there. They bounded up the stairs. At the landing, they met the superintendent and the father. Who are you, the superintendent said. You called the police, Menchu said. The superintendent and father looked at each other. The police already arrived, the father said. We're back up, Menchu said. Where's the officer? The superintendent pointed at the door. You might want to wait just a moment, he said, until it does it again. Does what again, Menchu said. The door sighed, bulged outward, and flattened again. I see, Menchu said. What's going on, the superintendent said. Don't worry, Menchu said. We've seen this before. I've been a super for 23 years, and I've never seen anything like it. Which is a testament to the fine job you're doing keeping off the building, Menchu said. I see this all the time. He nodded to Grace, Liam, and Sal. Grace positioned herself on point right in front of the door. Liam and Sal were right behind her. Menchu turned to the father and superintendent. Better get back, he said. Up, at least three steps. He reconsidered. 
You know, better if you just go all the way up to the next landing. My two daughters are in there, the father said. Are they in danger? Not for much longer, Menchu said. Now, please give us some space to work. The father and superintendent hesitated. Go, Menchu said. This time they moved. They retreated to the landing above. Menchu looked at Grace and nodded. Whenever you're ready, he said. The apartment door flew open before they could move, and this time, four tentacles of muscle and hair rushed out, snapping, flailing. But Grace was too fast. She was inside the door before the tentacles could catch her. They turned back inward and snaked in the air toward her. She dodged them, caught them herself, and ripped them in half. Another tentacle reached for the door. Liam jumped and blocked it from closing, so Sal got a nice view of what had become of Gabrielle's apartment. There was no apartment there anymore. It was a pulsing tangle of bone and hair, wood and teeth. Sal could see shapes lurching in the gloom, and Grace was fighting her way in. Something bellowed. Something else screeched. Need some help, maybe, Grace called. A vine slithered across the floor to Liam's foot, grew a three-fingered hand and wrapped itself around Liam's ankle. It started to tug. Oh, no, you don't, Liam said and braced himself in the doorframe. Sal raised a questioning eyebrow at Manchu, caught his eye. He nodded and handed her the shroud he'd had in the library. He pointed toward the door. Go, he said, get it, whatever it is. Sal leapt over Liam. Her feet landed on something soft. She looked down. It was a carpet, except that now there were tufts of hair growing out of it. It growled and writhed, tried to fold itself up over her legs and trap her. She kicked it off and kept moving down the hallway. The carpet slithered after her. The walls were closing in, the floor began to buckle. The air itself seemed to be thickening, filling with something. It was hard to run, way too hard. She was moving too slowly, like in a bad dream. There was light, greenish light coming from somewhere. And to her left, out of the corner of her eye, she could see into what used to be the living room. Something was happening in there. There were two girls suspended in the air. They looked like they were floating in jelly. The floor was a heaving landscape of moss and spikes of wood, outcroppings of bone. A long, distended creature was curling around them in a corkscrew from the floor to the ceiling. A four-legged creature that used to be an end table but now had fur and spikes along its spine was crawling across the ceiling toward them. It was carrying something in its mouth. Sal couldn't tell what. It was all too much, too much at once. For a moment, it threatened to break her open. If she let it, it would put her on the floor, laughing or screaming or crying or all three. But then her police officer's mind kicked in, the one that had seen murder victims and traffic accidents and suicides and just dealt with it, just gotten down to work. She took what she was seeing and put it away. Later. Later, she told herself, keep moving, keep moving, end the threat now. She made it halfway down the hallway and saw at last what Grace was fighting. There were two of them, like spiders or crabs, things with bulbous bodies and spindly limbs, things that were made of other things, tufts of hair, spurs of bone, thin muscles wrapped in papery skin. They both had huge panting mouths lined all the way around with sharp wooden teeth and they made staggering lunges toward Grace, trying to catch her in their limbs. They would eat her alive if they did. 
But Grace was too fast, way too fast. And Sal saw now why one of the things was moving slower than the other. Grace had pulled off three of its legs. The separated limbs lay in the muck on the floor. In the time Sal glanced down and glanced back up again, Grace ducked under the creature's body and took two more legs in her hands. As Sal watched, she pulled. The legs came out and the creature, with only one leg left, toppled over. Grace jumped in the air and landed on the body with both feet. It caved in beneath the soles of her boots with a squelching pop. Its skin crackled and an orange-brown porridge leaked out of it. The other creature let out a long, angry wail. Go, Grace said. I got this. She was wet and spattered, but her face was flush, her eyes alive. She loves this part of her job, Sal thought. Loves it. Sal kept going. The doorway at the end of the hall was closed. Sal put her shoulder to it and busted it open. The first thing she saw was the policeman, lying face up. He was held down by a rug of long, thin fingers that looked like they were made of fat. They were growing from the floor, and they curled all around his body, into his mouth. The walls expanded and collapsed, expanded and collapsed like a dying lung, panicking. The window at the far end of the room was coated in a translucent layer of skin. There was greenish-yellow light coming through the ceiling, through the walls, through the floor. And there, sitting at the desk at the other end of the room, a giant web of hair-pocked skin stretching from the ceiling to the floor and into his back, was a man, his head buried in a book. It looked at first like he had fallen asleep, like he'd been studying too hard. Then Sal noticed that she couldn't tell where his hands were. His hands, his arms, his face were somehow inside the pages, as though the book had turned to water and the man had dived right in, but then the book had solidified again when he was halfway inside. There's no way he's alive, Sal thought, but he was. His chest rose and fell, rose and fell, in time with the walls. It's the book, Sal thought. Get the book. It was only a few feet to the desk, but she couldn't run. She felt fingers grasping from the floor. They were enveloping her feet. They were climbing up her legs. She wrenched one leg free and took a step closer to Gabrielle. The fingers came at her faster. She pulled the other leg free, took another step. One more step and she'd be able to do what she needed to. But the fingers were skittering up to her waist now, across her chest and back, over her shoulders. They felt their way over the back of her head and onto her face. She shot her arm out and made a wild reach for the man at the desk. She couldn't reach him. The fingers crawled over her eyes, over her nose, over her chin. She felt them then, slipping between her teeth, wriggling down her throat. Her feet left the floor and she was being dragged down. Who would come for her? Grace, Manchu? Who would save those girls? Those girls. Sal opened her eyes. The fingers were gone. The room, the apartment, the entire city of Madrid. She was standing on the gentle dark green slope of a soft hill under a pink sky near the crescent shore of an orange sea. At the top of the slope was a low line of full trees. She could hear birds calling from far away in the darkness of the branches. But around her, it was quiet. It was bliss. 
Then she heard voices coming from the woods, instruments reedy and brassy, rattling percussion. A parade emerged from the shadows, heading down toward the ocean. There were dozens, no, hundreds of creatures in the throng, all knobby heads and spindly legs, and the music was frantic and joyful, full of expectation. The parade got thicker and thicker, and at last the trees parted, and Sal saw that maybe 20 of the creatures were carrying a platform on which sat a huge six-armed goblin with serene eyes and a benevolent smile. The goblin laughed, deep and echoing, and the creatures cheered in reply. The parade was heading down the hill, and Sal was in the way. She stood her ground. Where else was she going to go? The first of the creatures, a big drum strapped to its belly, got within just a couple steps of her before it seemed to notice her and stopped. It let out a long whistle, and the parade came to a shambling, wheezing halt. The giant goblin's eyes, which had been fixed to the sky, looked down at Sal. You're interrupting the goblin said. Sal took a deep breath. She put the pink sky and the orange water out of her head and focused on the voice. You see that all is well, the goblin said. What are you doing here? The man in the book, Sal thought. This is him. Or I might as well assume it is until I have a better idea. You're in danger, Sal said. The goblin smiled. I am right where I belong, it said. This is the anywhere that I want to be. The smile, friendly and peaceful, grew wider. Would you like to join me here? The goblin said. I'm already here, Sal said. In fact, I'm not sure you gave me a choice. But it's beautiful here, isn't it? Yes, Sal agreed. It is, but I'm not sure I want to stay. She thought of what was happening back in the apartment. She knew she didn't have a lot of time. She took a chance. I guess I just wish you'd asked first, she said. The goblin, for the first time, stopped smiling, and Sal saw an opening. Whether this guy is pink or blue or plaid, she thought, it doesn't change the fact that this is, in the end, just another hostage negotiation. She looked through the goblin's enormous entourage and found them quick. Two pale little figures with thin limbs and heavy-lidded eyes. Those are the girls, she thought. They have to be. She made a leap that she hoped would work. More important, she said. I wish you'd ask them. The goblin's eyes shifted downward to look at the girls. They're happy here, it said. Are they? Sal said. Did you ask them? They come over all the time and beg me to let them stay. And I hear how they play, the things they imagine. They have the most creative minds. The goblin's smile returned. In fact, everything you see around you now, from the trees to the hill to the sea, even to me, is from their heads. Did you know, it said, gesturing with three of its arms at its own body, that this is the way they see me? Now all six arms spread out wide. And this is the world they want. For a while, I bet they do, Sal said. But they live right upstairs from you, don't they? Yes, the goblin said. So maybe they love all of this, just like you say, but only to visit. At the end of the day, they go home, don't they? Their father or mother gets them and they go home? That's right. Well, Sal said, 
Their father is waiting outside right now, and he's really worried about them. He's a good man, the goblin said. But they don't want to go yet. How do you know that, Sal said. Because we're so happy. Because you don't see what's really happening, what you're doing to yourself and to your apartment and to those girls back there in the world. Everything is fine back there, the goblin said. No, Sal said. It isn't. Look for yourself. You can see back there, can't you? Yes. Then look. The goblin's eyes rolled skyward and kept rolling. They rolled all the way around, looking inward into its skull. The goblin's mouth opened. It gasped. Oh, God, it said and shuddered. Sal expected to feel some sense of victory, but it wouldn't come. The eyes rolled back again and looked at Sal. Now the goblin's huge face was pleading. I didn't know, it said. You have to believe I didn't. Sal nodded. I believe you. Can you fix it? I can let them go and everything else, the goblin said. But I can't get myself out. If you let me go, I can do it, Sal said. The goblin nodded. Do it, it said. Though I don't know how much of me will be left when you do. It set its jaw. It had made its decision. I'm sorry I caused all of this, it said. I didn't mean to. I can't imagine you did, Sal said. You're Gabriel, right? Yes. You're a good man too, Gabriel. The goblin didn't answer. Now, let us go, Sal said. Please, let us go. The goblin closed its eyes. The sky, the sea, the forest, the parade, they all winked out. With a long shout, Sal pulled herself free. She was back in the room, back in the apartment. The fingers were gone. But the whole place was shaking around her, on the verge of collapse. Gabrielle, the man in the book, was twitching and writhing. The walls were coming down. Sal stood up and took that final step, the last one she needed. She was close enough now. She fought her way through the sheets of skin around her, put one hand on the desk and the other hand on Gabrielle's shoulder, and pulled. He came free from the book a lot more easily than she expected. There was a sound like a sheaf of wet paper being torn in half, and he just slid out like a foal being born, bringing fat wads and strings of matter with him. She didn't have time to see if he still had hands or arms or a face. In that moment, she didn't care. It was the book. She slammed it shut, picked it up, took the shroud out of her jacket pocket, and wrapped the book in it. There was a loud gasp, a choking sound. The walls stopped breathing. The skin across the window dried out, cracked, and split open. Sal expected something awful to come out of the tear, but nothing did. The skin just hung from the wall now, brittle, flapping, letting in light. The fingers holding the policeman to the floor had already withered into twigs. They looked like they would break as soon as he moved. The mud, the moss, the vines all dried out in an instant, leaving only dust and scraps. There was light from the hallway, natural light. Sal heard something in the hallway thump and clatter to the floor. Someone said, phew, Grace. I'm guessing you got it, Grace called from the hallway. Whatever it was. Yeah. Got it, Sal said. All clear, Grace yelled. Menchu was there in seconds. 
He saw Sal crouched on the floor. The book, wrapped in the shroud, was on the floor next to her. She was checking the policeman's pulse. He's okay, she said. Great work, he said. Really fine. Not fine enough for him, though, Sal said. Gabrielle lay on the floor, panting. At first, Sal thought he was just covered in something. Something was on him. Then she saw what it was. He had aged a lot. He was old, older than he was ever meant to be. He was a thousand years old and withered away. His eyes had sunk into their sockets. He turned his head from side to side, and the last wisps of his white hair fell away from his cracked scalp. His white tongue moved behind his shriveled lips. Lo, Vieron, he said. What's he saying? Sal said. He's asking us a question, Manchu said. He is asking if we saw it. Manchu knelt down beside Gabriel, put a hand on his chest. He's dying, Manchu said. Lo vio, Gabriel said again. See, si, Manchu said, see. Si. It was a kindness, Sal realized. Manchu didn't know what Gabriel was talking about, but Sal did. See, si, she said. Gabriel cackled. A flood of slurred words rushed out of him. Manchu smiled, said words that had to be of consolation, of comfort though Sal didn't understand them. Gabriel coughed. The words slowed. He coughed again, twice. He tried to say something else, but he couldn't. A long, slow breath came out of him. Another one didn't follow. Manchu said a quick prayer and closed Gabriel's eyes. What was he saying? He was telling me everything he saw, Manchu said. Beautiful, exquisite things. The most wonderful things he had ever seen in his life. He looked back toward the hallway. That's not what we saw here, he said. Sal didn't say anything. The policeman opened his eyes and shifted on the floor as if he was waking from a long nap. There was dust all over him, all that was left of the fingers holding him down. He opened his eyes and blinked. The first person he saw was Manchu. Que pasó, he said. Saber, Manchu said. It was as though there had been an explosion in the apartment 200 years ago, and then it had been left to rot. The ceiling was falling in, the floorboards were split, breaking up. The walls were losing their plaster. The furniture was toppled, overturned, broken, shredded. And everything was covered with dust and cobwebs. They hung from above, they lay in the corners and along the floor. The superintendent was walking through it in shock, shaking his head, moving from room to room, taking in the rusted oven, the shattered bathtub, in despair. Grace was in the hallway, dusting herself off. Liam already waited on the landing. Come on, he said, time to move. The policeman was on his phone, calling for backup. He motioned for them to stay put. Grace already had her back to him and was halfway out of the place. Manchu was right behind her. Come on, he said to Sal. This is the part where right now you're more criminal than police. Before Sal left, she got a glimpse of the two girls. They were standing amid the wreckage of the living room, not a wrinkle on their clothes, not a hair out of place, huge smiles on their faces, their voices bright and cheerful. They were telling their father everything, 
They had seen wonderful things, amazing things. They had been to impossible places. They had to tell their father all about it. And he was there, on his knees, first hugging one, then the other, just thankful that they were alive. Two siblings, side by side. One of them recognized Sal and waved. Perry, Sal thought. She realized she'd managed to keep him out of her thoughts for a couple hours. The mission, its details, and its danger had pushed him to the side. But now there he was again, front and center, unmoving in his hospital bed in the wood-paneled room. Now, worse, the way he was just before he went under. Sal tried to dredge up an old memory to replace that, a day at the lake when they were kids, a fight in the back seat of the car, the stupid face he made at her when she graduated college. Anything. But she couldn't do it. What the hand had done to Perry was in her head now for good, and there was nothing she could do to get rid of it. Eight. Sal felt the crash from the adrenaline high as soon as they were headed out to the airport. They watched a police van fly past them in the opposite direction, sirens blaring. She wondered if it was the team dispatched to investigate whatever had happened in Gabrielle's apartment. She wondered what kind of sense the police would be able to make of it. They'd take a lot of pictures, do a lot of measurements, collect evidence. They'd get some vague sense of what had gone down by interviewing the superintendent and the father. There'd be some sketchy descriptions of everyone on Team 3, but not enough to incriminate anyone. And it would be clear that whatever had happened to the entire apartment and to the poor guy with the book couldn't have been done by four human beings in five minutes. Team 3 would just be one more anomaly in a mountain of anomalies in the police report. The only facts in the case would be the damage to the apartment, the two girls and a police officer were still alive, and the man who lived in the place was dead, of unknown causes. Sal was a good cop, she knew that, but she wouldn't have been able to put the case together with what the police had to work with. They didn't cover magic and demonology in forensics training. Sal felt, then, an almost overbearing weight of all the cases she hadn't been able to close, all the loose ends she'd never tied up, the bodies with no names, the things she'd never quite managed to explain. How many of them were the tattered leftovers of some magical event? If she were to go looking, how many of those unsolved cases would she find in the files of the Black Archives? Was this what Manchu meant when he said that there was more magic coming into the world than ever? And would that just keep manifesting itself as a series of open cases, unexplainable phenomena, until there was so much magic in the world that it was too late to deny it? We're not prepared for that, Sal thought as they got on the plane. We have no idea how to live with it. She was asleep five minutes later. She didn't feel much better when she woke up in Rome. There was a debriefing with Asante in the Black Archives. It went by in a haze. Sal reported what needed reporting, what she saw and what she did, but couldn't offer much in the way of clarifying thoughts or analysis. Someone else was going to have to do the thinking right now. What she needed was sleep, about 20 hours of it. She was still on the couch when the others got up to leave. First Grace followed by Manchu. Liam lingered for a moment as if he wanted to talk to her, as Hal didn't have the energy and just closed her eyes for a moment. When she opened them again, Liam was already starting up the stairs. She got up at last. First mission, 
Asante said. How does it feel? Sal bristled for a second. That did it. Now everyone on the whole damn team wanted to know how she felt. But something in Asante's voice made her let down her guard. Asante wasn't worried, she was just curious. How did it feel when you first got here, Sal said. Asante smiled. For me? I was excited. But I had already seen a bit of what magic could do, and that glimpse was not nearly as terrifying as what you saw, or as personal. What did you see? Sal said. Not all of these things that we're locking away down here are part of our world, as much part of God's creation as the clouds in the air. Sometimes I suspect that if we understood it better, we would see that magic isn't so much a part of our world as it is that we are a part of its world. Magic is God, huh? Sal said. Asante laughed. I wouldn't go that far. You don't sound like you believe in the mission very much. Oh, I do, Asante said. I just don't believe magic is evil. What I believe is that most people should not be using it. Who should, Sal said. Officially speaking, Asante said. No one. Her smile faded at last. I'm sorry about your brother. Thanks. Sal was expecting another speech about how the society was going to do everything it could to save him. But Asante didn't say anything. She was just sorry. It was all that needed to be said about it. The silence in the conversation opened a door. Sal walked through. Asante, Sal said. Are all the missions like that? No, Asante said. Some of them are worse, much worse. But you will see things no one else has seen. Things that, I think, will put you beyond faith. Faith asks you to believe that miracles can happen. You will know that miracles happen because you will have seen them with your own eyes. That's worth something, I think. Worth the hardship. Though I don't think it's worth losing a brother. Sal knew the answer to her next question already, but she wanted to ask it. She wanted companionship. Will we be able to save him? She said. Asante shook her head. I don't know, she said. But your best chance is here. That was when it all caught up to her. Perry. She'd wanted to tell him to get lost when he'd needed her help more than he ever had. Grace, tears of blood, wrong smiles, the coma, fingers tangling around her legs. An apartment that looked like it had been dropped from the top of a building and crashed into the street. A man turned into a husk with a wretched euphoric smile on his face. Did you see it? Did you see it? She saw it, all right. She found herself crying, harder than she'd cried in a long time. Asante didn't say anything, didn't ask any questions or offer cheap consolation. She just walked over from behind her desk and gave Sal a long hug until the sobs stopped and her breathing steadied again. I just want my brother back, Sal said. Asante nodded. Sal's phone pinged. What the hell, Sal said. Who is it, Asante said. Sal looked at her phone. It's my parents. What are you going to tell them, Asante said. The phone was still pinging. I am fighting monsters for the Catholic Church so I can save your son from a demon that possessed him after he opened a magic book. It was so ridiculous when she thought of it that way that she almost laughed. But what was she going to say? Sal looked up at Asante. 
I have no idea, she said. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Bookburners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.